Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Exodus, the 20th chapter. And we'll pick up the reading in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we've heard your word from Exodus chapter 20. And we come now underneath that word to hear by the power of the Spirit its significance and meaningfulness for us as your people so far removed from this word, and yet this word no more, no less pertinent for us now as it was for the people of Israel then. But we need your Spirit to help us see that. And even right now, Lord, you know certain hearts, you know all of us here in this room, but you know certain hearts in this room may be pretty much put on their heels hearing these commands afresh. Maybe some discouragement already taking root as we named some of those commands both earlier in the confession and now again in the message. And we're reminded of ways in which we've broken your law. 
And Lord, sometimes it's hard for us in the midst of discouragement to lift up our heads and to listen, even though you have a word of comfort and encouragement to give to us from it. Would you help us there? Would you know each of our hearts very well right now? And would you not let us squirm out from under the purposes that you intend today from this word? Instead, Lord, would you let the searchlight of the Holy Spirit come in to reveal what needs to be revealed and then to cascade the light of Christ over the whole of our hearts. Oh, Lord Jesus, hear this prayer and answer it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was several months ago, I imagine now, that I was listening to a lecture from a man by the name of Ron Highfield. He's a professor at Pepperdine um, University in California. He's written a book on um, God and freedom and human dignity. Uh, A handful of years ago, I actually um, don't own the book, so don't exactly know what I'm recommending when I mention it to you. Um, But I do recommend this particular lecture that I heard from, from Ron. And uh, one of the interesting things that he, he noted in that lecture was a way, um, a way that we can, as those who sit in the, the time and space and history that we sit in in the 21st century, how can we know what he referred to as the dominant narrative of a culture's uh, belief? How, do you, how can you put your finger on what we would say this cultural moment believes? And in and, and, and Ron's... Um, idea is understanding. He, he said, well, all you have to do is look for the applause line. That's the way he put it. You've got to look for the applause line. Like when you're listening to the, to the Oscars or when you're listening to the Grammys and the artist, the movie star who's just won best picture gets up there and thanks a whole bunch of folks that you and I don't know. And then says an inspiring something to us as the listening audience, something along the lines of, you know, I followed my heart to get here. So many people tried to stand in my way, but I pushed them all to the side. My parents, my producers, they didn't think we would ever get here, but I just set my heart to it. I gave in to whatever it is that I desired. I put all my efforts into it, my dreams before me, and they came true. And if you do the same, the same could happen for you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. And, you and, and Highfield just sort of noted that, that you know, how, how opposite that message is from, from the message we actually get in the, in the scriptures. Um, I mean, I just want you to imagine me winning the Best Picture Award, lead actor in some blockbuster thriller, <laughs> some Tom Cruise used to be role, and I've now stepped into it, and I'm receiving my Oscar, and I say... You know, friends, you're going to be tempted to follow your heart. Don't do it. If you give in to your heart, it might destroy you. It would almost inevitably lead you into some form of slavery to the things of this world. And I just want to encourage you, submit to rightful authority. Um, Obey the commands of Scripture. And 
you'll find the real happiness and joy that your life is made for. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, right? That just does, like, no applause, right? I mean, like, crickets, right? That's right. It's like quiet as a mouse. Like, they're like, who is this guy? Bring us Tom Cruise back, you know? Like, um, we really can't imagine that. And then part of the reasons we can't imagine that is the, the, the vantage point, the dominant cultural narrative, the things where we're re-emphasizing what's already believed generally is that true freedom really comes when we do it in our way and we just need to give release to that. That's the kind of message that really gets, gets the applause. But the Bible actually makes a very different case when it comes to the flourishing of, of life and, and happiness and joy and even freedom. The Bible makes the case that those things come only when we live in accord with that which we've been designed to be. Only those things come when we live in accord with or in alignment with what we are designed to be. Now, what's quite interesting about that is that that, according to the Bible, is summarized here in the Ten Commandments, right? This is not necessarily the place you would go for the vision casting of your own life and future and happiness and joy. And yet, the Bible would root the Ten Commandments as inextricably connected to all the things that we really long for and desire in the world. Now, in some general way, you can see that, right? Like if we live in the world where murder doesn't happen and adultery doesn't happen and like people don't lie and steal, like, hello, the world's a lot better, right? Like happiness, satisfaction, and joy get better if the world is lived in, in that manner. And so there's a some general sense in which we would say that's true, but specifically, very often the way the commands register, both in the heart of our culture and I think increasingly for, for us who drink in the, the spirit of the age, is they're incredibly restrictive. They're, they're telling us there's a whole bunch of stuff we can't do, and we don't like being told that we can't do certain things, even if it's things we don't really want to do. We still don't really want to be told that we can't do them. Like We want to make the decision not to do them. Like Don't tell me not to do them. I'll just make the decision uh, not to do them. We'd rather be in the driver's seat of this. And the Bible tells us in its command structure and in the overarching message of Exodus chapter 20 is that we're not in the driver's seat of the commands. We, we're receiving them. We're not giving them. The Lord is commanding them. We're not deciding to do them. And it puts us actually in this role of creature, which is who we are. Underneath his authority, bound to do what he commands. And everything that I just said is very offensive in the day and moment in which we live. And we need to own that. We need to acknowledge that. Even maybe some of you in this room feel even a sense of that um, when we approach the commands. And, and, and so what I want to do in order to just acknowledge that some of the struggle in approaching the commands, I want to spend this week introducing the commands so that you can just hear how the, the Lord introduces them and understand the spirit in which the commands are given and the character of how those commands are meant to be received so that you can better appreciate the significance of what the Lord is calling us into to be commandment keepers. And we'll look at that more primarily next week. And, and to do that, I want to really just look at, at, at three words. I want to look at Lord. 
I want to look at law, and I want to look at love. Those are the three things I want you to see in this text. Lord, law, and love. We might say, who is it that's speaking in this text? What is it that he's saying at the core of this text? And how does who he is and what he says come together? It comes together in love. Now, I want to start with this, this word Lord because it's right there at the, right the opening of the text. Look at verse Verses 1 and 2, and God spoke all these things. And notice, notice this self-identifying kind of moment. God's actually kind of cutting what we would call cutting a covenant or establishing a formal relationship with the nation of Israel. This is really their constitution. This is their moment where they are being established as a nation as the commandments of the Lord come forward. And notice how the, God begins. He says, I am the Lord your God, right? He identifies himself in a, in a very specific way. And so I want you to see, when we're looking at the Lord, I want you to see first that he wants you to know, before he tells you anything about what to do, he wants you to know who he is. He wants you to know who he is. And he says, I am the Lord, your God. Now I think, let's again, sort of get in the shoes of our own cultural moment. When, when someone tells you that you can't do something, Right? You can't do something. You can't go behind that door, right? You know, that door. You, you can't do it. Just don't, you can't go behind the door. There's something, I'll tell you what happens to me sometimes, especially if I want to go behind that door. I'll say in my mind, who says? Who says? Do you ever do this? Is this just me? Is this just, am I the only one with a rebellious heart in here, right? <laughs> When you tell me I can't do something, I want to know who says. Now, that's going on in my mind. I'm smart enough for that not to usually come out of my lips. And so in, in that moment, what I'm actually asking, do you understand what I'm asking? I'm asking, by what authority? And I'm actually going to assess by what you tell me whether I have to submit to that authority or not. That's what I'm trying to judge, right? The person who is claiming an authority over that door, actually have authority over that door, <laughs> and my ability to go in and out of that. I'm probably doing a little assessment like that in my own mind. That's really important about human nature because when a command comes forward, we want to know who's saying it. And we want to know what position they're in. And the Lord, right from the very beginning, tells us who He is. I am the Lord your God. Now, what's interesting is it gives us a few terms. He doesn't just say, I am God, this is what I said, deal with it. It's not, it's not, it's not what he said, right? This is not that kind of moment. He actually gives us his personal covenantal name. I am the Lord. This is the same name that Moses received in Exodus chapter 3 when he was at the burning bush. It's the name Yahweh. In fact, if you can see it in the language here, I am the Lord. I am that I am. It's literally how it would read in the Hebrew. I am that I am your God. If we were being wooden in our translation. I am the Lord. And you see the capital letters on the Lord probably in your translation there? That's always an indicator of we're dealing with a covenant name. This means that this is God identifying himself as the personal rescuing, redeeming, loving, providing God who has made promises to the people of Israel. And he wants to bring to bear all of that memory as he introduces himself. 
And, and notice the personal piece of it. I am the Lord, your God. He, you know what he could have said? I am the Lord, the God. That would be true too. It's not what he says. He says, I'm your God. I mean, I've given myself to you. Um, we have a personal relationship. You know me. I love you. That's the introduction of how the Lord is introducing the commands. He wants us to remember before, before he begins to speak to us about the commands, he wants us to remember who he is. He gives us his covenant name. He speaks in personal and relational terms. Uh, you, you know, that's so important because he is, if I can put it this way, he is an expert on you and me. <laughs> he really is an expert on you. Do you believe that? Think, think, of how this, think of how this works. If you need help with a medical issue, who do you go to? You go to a doctor. I'll answer for you. Um, you go to, you go to, if you have a financial issue, who do you go to? You go to a financial advisor, right? If you have a legal issue, who do you, who do you go to? You go to a lawyer. Why, why do you do that? Why, why, do, why don't you come to me for your medical issues, right? Do not come to me for your medical issues. Let me put it in one, one way so you, it'll register. Because I'm not an authority on medical issues. Right? Why is it important that we listen to the Lord over what life, joy, happiness, flourishing looks like in the human person? Because he's the leading expert on you and me. He made you. And you know how he made you? After his image. After his image. You, you know what that means? It means that you don't run well without him. You don't run as you ought to. You don't operate as you ought to without being in relationship and without learning to reflect the one in whom you are designed to be in relationship and reflect. It's just the way it works. So when he comes to you and he says, I am the Lord, your God, and then as he begins to unpack who it is that he actually is and what it is that he's done, he's putting you in a context of being a hearer that says, I can sit at this God's feet and receive from him what it is that he has to say to me, even if it's really hard. You know, doctors have to say hard things to us, right? They have to sometimes give us bad news. And then give us instruction as to how we need to respond to the news that we received. They don't do that because they hate us. We are their patient to be cared for. We need to know the truth. And we need to know how to live in light of the new truth about us. In a very real sense, this Lord your God who has known the people of Israel who has been their maker, and whom he has made in their image, and, and now as we see has actually redeemed them, is coming to them and saying, now listen, I'm going to have some things that are going to cramp some aspects of your style and living. It's going to feel that way from the beginning, but I want you to know 
where it comes from, who it comes from, and why it comes to you. Because I am the God who is your Lord, who is your God, who has made you, who has redeemed you. You, in other words, can trust me. You can trust me. Now, how different is that then? I am, the, I am God and do this because I said so. Feel how different that is? That certainly doesn't make you want to do it, even if all of that is true. And if anyone ever had the position to be able to say it like that, it's this thundering God and lightning God on the Mount of Sinai. And that's not how he said it. He is telling you who he is, that we might be inclined to hear what it is he has to say. What a loving thing that is, isn't it? What a loving and gracious thing this is to see this in our God. And he doesn't just want us to know who he is. Notice he wants us to see what it is he's done. Look there at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Isn't that a a wonderful prologue? Here's what I've done. Here's our history, in other words. Hey, you and I have history. You you know the people who I listen to and and maybe take their words with the the greatest amount of care and meaning and significance? It's people who I know love me. And I know love me because we have a long, trustworthy history together. Is that true with you as well? Those are the people that you're inclined to to listen to and really take to heart. You know, when those people call me and say, Nate, I really think you need to think about this. Or they need to address something. I'm listening. I'm listening with with more intent and with with a deeper sense of consideration because I know the source from where it's come from. He says, I want you to know I'm the one who came and I rescued you out of the clutches of Pharaoh. I destroyed your enemy. I parted the Red Seas and brought you forth on dry land. I've given you water from a rock and manna from heaven. I am the one who's redeemed you, saved you, and is providing for you. As I come to you to speak to you, I'm not leaving any of that behind. Our relationship is not radically changing in this moment. I'm pulling the thread of I'm pulling the grace thread through as I give to you. The commands. You know, this is often really something parents have to learn to do with their, their children. It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing, but it, it's you're tempted, right? You give that teenager that curfew, and it's too early, right? And you don't have a chapter and verse for curfew, right? You can't just go, well, in Sheridan, uh, chapter 21, right? This is, you know, you don't have that. And so you're making a judgment call based on what you believe to be reasonable and wise and all of those sorts of things. And sometimes as a parent, I'll just speak personally, sometimes you don't feel like your rationale is great. Right? You just don't. You, you don't. Like, you, you're completely sold on what it is you're saying as an important rule. You just are not quite sure that this is going to be compelling as you try to convince them of this thing. And I know sometimes in, in the Sheridan household, where that goes is we say something like, in our relationship, and when we've made rules, 
Your mom and I will sometimes make mistakes, wouldn't we? We don't know everything perfectly. But would you doubt that we love you? And would you doubt that we're trying to do what's in your best interest, even if we're wrong? Can you bear with us in that? You feel the difference? That's the Lord here. It's like I'm going to say some things that are going to be challenging. The rationales are really good. I know you better than you know you as to what you need to hear. But you're still young. You're young in the faith, Israel. And I'm going to call, as it were, on the collective experience in relationship with me that you might trust me as I come to you with these commands. That's our Lord. Now, why do you think the Lord started in this way? Well, from, from a, a literary standpoint, um, the Lord is actually making a covenant here and he's structuring it like an ancient Near Eastern covenant that always included an introduction of the author and the king. And so he's introducing it that way and it always includes what's called the prologue. It includes some history of our relationship. So he's structuring it literarily like a covenant of the ancient Near East. And we'll, we'll probably glance a little more at that next week. But more than that, think of why he would emphasize these things in particular with these people. Who are these people? They're former slaves. These are people whose entire identity was shaped by rules and commands. Their whole identity for generation has been shaped by rules, by masters, by tyrants, by people who used rules and commands for their own self-interest, for their own benefit. Masters who could care less about Hebrew slaves. Another one bites the dust. We just move them off to the end and put the next one in there so we can build our pyramid. It was very much the spirit of what they had been under. So you can imagine these people who are, shall we say, traumatized by rules, traumatized by commands, by tyrannical rulers, who now come with this God who's redeemed them, who's going to come with commands, how might your heart respond? Oh no, it's happening again. He did all of those good things to get us to a point where we would trust Him so that He could rebondage us. He's really no different from the gods of Egypt. He's no different from Pharaoh who is the face of God in Egypt. Can you imagine this kind of soul that would be there as a part of the shepherding of the Lord and of Moses as they care for the people of Israel? This would have been their reaction. They would have had traumatic responses to the idea of authority and commands and all of those kinds of things. They would have been formed by it in that way. And the the Lord takes time at the very opening of his prologue not to make a lot to do about his own authority, not to make a lot to do about his holiness, which he's already done at the very beginning. In the prologue part, what's he trying to do? Stir up a reminder of his love. Now, all those things that we looked at yesterday with, or last Sunday with regards to holiness and all of the holiness pieces we're going to see at the end of this text, we'll wind up addressing next week together. 
What's important for us to slow down and spend this kind of time in the text in this way is because we, don't, we live in, an, in a quite similar age. Now, our re- reasons for being so reactionary to commands and authority uh, sometimes definitely has to do with abuse, but in many cases has to do with the kind of air that we breathe. It has to do with the kind of individualism and libertinism that has become a part of the cultural milieu and context in which we live. But the same kind of, I immediately am suspicious of you if you are in authority and give a command, is the spirit of the age. And I want you to see that even God himself is patient in that process to lay foundations so that we as his people can hear his commands coming from a benevolent and kind and redeeming God. So this is the Lord. This is who gives you the commands. I want, I want you to see who he is and what it is he's done. Now I want you just to look briefly with me at the second L, at the law. We see the Lord. I want you to see the law. And, and just from the get-go, let's, let's say it this way. Grace in this whole passage is the first word, right? It's the first word of Exodus chapter 20. Grace is the first word. It's actually ultimately the final word. And and I think we'll we'll see that. It's the, the final word. But we need to hear this. Grace is not the only word in this text. Law is in this text. And it is a good word from the Lord. Now, the reason that's important to say is that if, I don't know if you have the same tendency that I have, but it's, 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 not, it's nice uh, often to uh, come to church and to hear a really assuring message and, and hear of Christ and His grace and His salvation and like feel the, the warmth and the comfort and the rest of that and just Stop right there and be full of joy. How many of you like that? Like, I, I, I like that. I actually like preaching sermons like that. I, I really enjoy that. It's a really important thing. What's interesting about this text is that grace is front-loaded. And though we would be tempted to stop listening now, we're like, amen. I've got all I need. He loves me. Let's get out of here. When we want to stop listening, he's still speaking. He's still talking in this text. And what he's telling to us in this text is law. And that law is coming out of the grace that he has already laid at the foundation of our relationship. That's what he wants you to know. So, so hear that prologue, right? I am the God who has redeemed you out of Egypt. I've rescued you. What if he had said, Israel, here are the Ten Commandments. Get to work. Once I see that you've had some measure of keeping them, I'll show up and think about redeeming you. But until that moment comes, get to work. That would be a very different kind of structure, wouldn't it? Instead, he wants them to know, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, I've given you freedom. I'm not about to re-bondage you. I'm about to tell you what freedom looks like. 
I'm about to tell you how to live free. How to live in the grace of the salvation that I've won for you. I'm about to show you the pathway of enjoying the benefits of my grace. That's what I'm about to do. How often do you think of the commands in that way? Do you see the law is not the first word of which then grace would maybe eventually come. Grace is the first word and out of the grace is the extension of the law. That makes all the difference in the world. That makes all the difference in the world. And so as he speaks, no other gods before me, make no graven image, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And each of these commands, as he speaks them, they're extensions of the gracious relationship that he's already established and secured for the people of Israel and for all of those who are in Christ Jesus today. And he wants you to know now, here's what living in that salvation looks like. Here are the blessings and benefits of it. That's where the law is to be received. So as you begin to receive the law this way and you begin to say, well, what can we learn from looking at the law as a scope? Well, I want you to see what scholars have, have regularly noted as two tables of the law here. Two tables of the law. Now, you, you probably can see, right, Charlton Heston, right? Right? You, can, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? The movie, right? It's okay. It's all right. It takes us all a long time sometimes to pick up on these things. Charlton Heston's got the two tablets, right? You remember that? And, and typically in the two tablets, we think, We've got one side is one table of the law, and one side is the other table of the law. Well, I tend to think that's actually not, not going on here in the text. I think we probably have two copies of the same law, one, one for God to remember and one for the people to remember. That's the way covenants usually worked uh, in that day, is you'd have two copies of the covenant. And so likely something like that is in play here. But when you look at the law itself as a whole, you do see what I think we can appropriately call two aspects or two tables, not necessarily two tablets, but two tables of the law. And, and, and the way scholars tend to break it up, I think, is super helpful. If you look at the first four of the commands, we refer to these as the commandments that relate from man's relationship to God. Make no other gods before me. Make no graven image. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. These have to do with worship. They have to do with our relationship with God. And they're foundational. Notice they're first. Do you notice that? He didn't start with the latter half that had to do with something completely different. He started with the first. In other words, our relationship with God's got to be number one in our executing of the commandments. That's where he starts. But notice, secondly, the second table of the law relates to our relationship with one another. Our relationship horizontally. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. The, the, the six commands that come in the second table of the law have to do with the horizontal relationship. How does this relationship with the Lord, which is foundational, then begin to inform our relationship with one another? And what we're seeing is that the commands are intended to be understood as comprehensive statements for the way in which the Christian should live his or her life, or the way in which the follower of Yahweh in the Old Testament should live his or her life, extending out from the gracious relationship that the Lord has established. 
We must live with the primacy of our relationship with the Lord, and we must live as an extension horizontally in peace in our relationship with one another. This means that the commands aren't actually just touching on the things which they command, but actually every part of the cosmos. The relationship with God, the one who is over the universe and over everything that is made, our relationship with Him touches on everything else in our relationship with the world. There's a global or cosmic dimension that's embedded into the structure of these two tables. Part of what the Lord is seeking to do here is to wake us up to the dimensions of the law. You know, one of the areas that we'll spend a little time in, if you join us on Wednesday night, you'll see this even, even more deeply as we're taking time to go one command at a time on Wednesday night during our evening Vesper service here to, to go in deeper to what these commands actually mean. Because if you hear them, you notice that they, well, they're all in the negative, right? Thou shalt not, Right? Thou shalt not. Uh, they're all about not doing things. Here are the things I don't want you to do. Now, for some of us, we think, well, there's probably a nicer way to say that, you know, or there's probably, you know, if we just had a PR job on these Ten Commandments, it probably would turn out a little bit better. Some of us, you know, it comes across as grading against certain sensibilities, but there's actually a, a great wisdom to it. There's actually several elements of great wisdom to it. <laughs> well, one is, I think, comes from Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson notes that it's easier to tell someone what not to do than it is to tell them what to do. And especially for those who are young in the faith, that's incredibly important. Here are the immature uh, Israelites just coming out of Egypt, and they're like children before their father God. And as he comes to them, he tells them, don't do these things. Now, I'll just tell you, if you've raised children, you know that this is the, the case. You know, to tell Johnny, do not steal Susie's toy, right? That's pretty straightforward. But to train Johnny to share... Takes a lifetime. You can, you can tell him don't do that, but to tell him what to do is a lot harder. It's, a, it's actually, it goes a lot further, and it's actually, its tentacles um, comprehensively stretch into a lot of different spheres. And that's actually part of the wisdom of the commands. God here is, is telling us no to something, but what he's also doing at the same time is he's, tell, he's telling you to say yes to its opposite. Notice how this worked in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when Adam and Eve received the single command? Not the Ten Commandments in the Garden of Eden. They just received the single command. And the single command was also in the negative. Do you remember? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know? That's the command. We remember the command. Do you, can, you, can you pinpoint the opposite of the command? The opposite of the command is... Every other tree I've planted is free for you to eat. The, the command is incredibly generous. It's meant to say, all of this is yours. This is the one thing I'm telling you no to. Now, Adam and Eve, right? And also, with the serpent's help here in the temptation, they're like, hmm, it's funny, that's the one tree I want to eat from. Welcome to the human predicament, right? And so through temptation, what does actually the serpent try to do? He says, actually, 
God knows that when you eat of this, you'll be like him. What's he, what's he appealing to? Stinginess. God's holding back on you. He's not good. And that notion that he's not good gets them zeroed in on the one thing he said no to. And you know what? They went to go freely choose, right? Freely choose their path and immediately lost the good life. Because what? The command was not in any way a restriction to their joy or freedom or provision. The command was the protection of their joy, provision, and freedom. The, when they kept it, they got all of the blessing and the generosity of God. The same thing is true here. The same thing is true here. You know, we said earlier, if you obey the Ten Commandments, life generally is better in the world. Well, even for you personally. You know, if you live a life where God is the number one reality that you're serving, and you don't bow down to idols, and you honor Him with your words, and you obey His rest ethic, and you honor your father and your mother, and you don't kill people, and you don't commit adultery, and you don't lie, and you don't steal, and you don't walk around wishing you had what everybody else had. You know, if you don't do those things, your life goes pretty well. Generally speaking. Your life begins to be shaped and honed more after the likeness of the Lord. The commands aren't for your restriction. They're for your joy. They're for your freedom. I've used the illustration but from the playgrounds. Where there are busy roads surrounding the playground and the fences the Lord puts up so that the children can play safely within the confines of the playground. Is a playground a fun place? It's a wonderful place. It's a joyous place. It's what, in a sense, he has made the Garden of Eden for. He's made this world for. But he says, if people complain about the fences and tear down fences, you know what happened? Children run out on the road. And we quit having fun. The joy and the flourishing and the freedom that was in the tearing down of the fences became the very thing that actually destroys us. The commands are designed in just that way. And they're intended in that way for our good. Now we see the positive implication of this when we actually turn to the New Testament. You, you saw that earlier in our service we read Mark chapter 12. You remember that? Right before our confession of sin this morning, we, we read through the narrative where the teacher of the law, this expert in the law, came to Jesus and he came with something of a, of a trick question and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the Lord your God, he is one, quoting Deuteronomy 6, and then unpacking the commandments as given in Deuteronomy to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, what is that? What's the first four commandments? Positively stated. Positively stated. Right? So if you were to just look at the commandments as, okay, I don't need to commit idolatry, don't need to be making carved images, I, I don't need to be swearing in the Lord's name, I, I don't need to be, you know, forsaking His Sabbath. As long as I, do, as long as I don't do those things, I'm okay. Wrong. You also have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have to do the implication of that thing. You don't just not murder. 
You actually serve the life of your neighbor. You don't just not steal. You're generous. You are abundant in your giving. Right? This becomes the spirit of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? What we see is the fullness of the Ten Commandments can be distilled to the two. In the greatest commandment in, in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 22. And in both of those, we are now beginning to see the fullness of what it is that God requires of us. You see, what happens when we just look at the Ten Commandments and we don't realize the full scope of the law and the Scriptures, we can feel pretty decent about how we're doing. But when we begin to realize that it's loving the Lord your God with everything that's in us, and it's loving our neighbor as if they are ourselves, all of a sudden, we begin to see we have fallen woefully short. And we begin to see that this law that now has been given in the form of love leads us to the lawkeeper who loves us. Even Christ himself. You see, when you look at the commandments, I don't know what you see. Because there's a number of things that you could see. You could see how you've failed. And that's probably true. Well, it is true. You, you could see how you should live. That's true too. And that's an appropriate thing to see. But when you look at the law, do you not also see Christ for you? Do you see what he did for you? The one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then on the cross, to receive all your law breaking. After he had done all your law keeping. And to have paid the full penalty for all the ways that you and I have broken the law of God all of our lives. And today, you know what? If you are in Christ, amazingly, before the Father right now, you know what your record says? It says that you're a lawkeeper. That you're perfect. There's not a blot. And it's because the record that the Father is looking at is your substitute's record. But it's yours in Him. And he has loved you in his law keeping. He has loved you in his taking the punishment for your law breaking. And so that one comes to you and he says to you, keep my law. Keep my law. Because there is no mistaking the fact that it comes from one who loves you. As we look at the Ten Commandments together and as we consider the depth of their teaching, I want you to come back over and over to the richness of who Christ is. And never lose sight of the comfort that's in the midst of the law. And then as you hear and experience the sharp edge of the law, you experience its conviction, which is good. When you know the guilt of your own sin from it and you run to Christ based upon it, and you find your heart being increasingly warmed to say, I delight in this law, it is my meditation day and night. You can imagine looking at that law as a finished work of Christ, not as a condemnation sentence for you, changes the way you approach it. Changes the way you see it. It'll change the way you worship. It'll change the way you live.
As we go into Wednesday nights and next Sunday together, let's be those who remember our lawkeeper, the one who paid for our law-breaking, and the one who has made us and is making us keepers of the law. Father in heaven, we pray by Christ and his grace, in the power of the Spirit, you would indeed press home these truths until they change us, until they make us new at every level. We long to keep your law, and we long for the grace and the strength of resolve and perseverance to say yes to your commands and find them to be our happy choice. Lord, would you grow us in the grace of law and would we find the smile of your grace upon us even in our stumbling forward in obedience until the day where we are fully righteous in every sense. And the law is the instinct of our soul. Do that work now ahead of time and get us ready for that good and glorious day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.